Now, what percentage of people do you think it actually did? Five? Point two. Point two? Yeah, the answer. Thanks, Diamond. She's <laughs> really smart. It's actually, did you know that or that a guess? No. Really? Wow. The answer is, in fact, point two. Is one quarter of one percent of people said yes, it made a difference. That's a huge drop off from 65% to one quarter of 1%. And why is it that you can go and you can see a movie like that and you can see the pain of Jesus and it still not have an impact on you? Why is it? Pain is temporary, so few. Yeah, if you watch Pain, I mean, how many of you guys have seen any action movie? If you've seen Braveheart, you can go watch those movies. You're not moved to convert to, you know, you don't move from America to Scotland and pick up Scottish citizenship. Nobody does that. You're, you're inspired for a moment. Yeah. What's the difference? Do you have an idea? Worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. That's exactly what it is. And, the, and, and the, the, the real thing that will connect the dots between godly and worldly sorrow will be personal responsibility for what happened to Jesus. If you see you had a role in it, if you see that it was actually your fault or your responsibility that he was there, that changes things. If you can't muster that or you don't see that, then it just becomes an inspiring story. You know, none of us became witches or wizards when you read about Harry Potter. Did you? Uh, <laughs> Alright, we're going to go back to the problems. <laughs> Personal responsibility. But, it's our sin that sends Jesus to the cross, but it's his love that makes sure that he actually stays there. He didn't have to do that. He could have said, you know what? Y'all deserve what you get. And you know what? He would still be just would not be out of the realm of possibility, would not be out of the realm of reason. Totally be fine. But his love actually goes, you know what, I will take your punishment for you. So we get there. Um, okay, cool. Now, once we get to this point, and I, I, I get to the very end of um, Mark 15, where it talks about the death of Jesus, and then I recap everything and I go, I go, so let's just recap what he's been through. He's been up all night, sweating blood, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He was abandoned by his friends, betrayed by one of his closest followers. He was arrested, beat up, condemned by a false trial, beat up again, spit on, mocked, said they'd rather have a murderer set free than him, flogged to within an inch of his life, mocked once again by the praetorium turned into a game piece by some of the soldiers, made to carry his cross through the winding streets of Jerusalem, mocked again, crucified on a cross, mocked, insulted, separated and forsaken by his Father and our God, and ultimately dies for our sins. Now, why did Jesus do all this? Because he loves you. So why should you want to be a Christian? 
because Jesus loves you. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. If he just died and that was it, this would be a bummer of a thing to study out. The story doesn't end there. Let's go to Acts 2. And I'm actually going to address this second half of the resurrection study or resolution, whatever. What do I do about all that? Well, check it out. In Acts 2, and we're actually going to start in verse 29. And this is a little bit of a departure. Let's go all turn over there together. Oh, this is cool. This is a this is a branch from an olive tree from the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. I got lots of stuff like that. Alright, so Acts 2. So this is a little different. Not a ton different, but it completes the picture. And I'll show you how even just the, the little study that I've been able to do recently has kind of shifted my mind about all this. Bless you. Bless you. But Acts 2, starting in verse 29, this is Peter talking 50 days after Jesus dies and is buried. And then we know resurrected, but check it out. Verse 29, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. He's dead and he stayed dead. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. That he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of the Father, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This is where the disciples all got the Holy Spirit come on him at Pentecost. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And I love this. This is just clear cut. You could not get any more clear cut in the Bible than somebody who's not a Christian asking, what do I do to become a Christian? And then somebody tells them. And Peter goes, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to the number that day. Woo! Love it. Yeah. The plan of salvation right there. The part that I've added here that we don't normally talk about is that beginning part. Right. That what is central to this message is not just one of moralizing and not just one of guilt of you did kill Jesus, which is, by the way, 36, the conclusion of the matter, the therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That there is guilt upon your head. 
And some of you have been studying the Bible, they'll read the cross and they'll see, oh my gosh, what have I done? The dots are connected. It wasn't just that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It was that your sins put him there. It was your responsibility that he was there. But this is how big and amazing and how powerful God is. That he didn't let Jesus stay dead. That your sin was not strong enough to just kill him and and to keep, keep him stay dead. God's power is greater than that. He rose. He's alive. He did not stay dead. And if that happens to Jesus, now that can happen for you as well. He didn't stay dead and neither do you have to stay dead because God's power is bigger than that. What do you do about it? That's why this is the good news, by the way. The bad news is the wage of sin is death. The bad news is your sin killed Jesus. The good news is, is he rose. And so can you. Amen. Praise God for that. Yeah. Amen. And what I love about this is that what does God require of you? What does he ask of you? Repent and be baptized. Those are the must-ask questions when you get to actually studying this. Like, if somebody killed, this is, remember what I talked about in the problem study? Where there's that story that I used about if somebody, you know, comes and kills the person that you love the most. Mm-hmm. Just imagine this for a second. Imagine that we're back there. The person you love the most is killed. And that the murderer is running across, you know, the running towards Hampton Boulevard out here. And they stop right around the seal in the middle of the mall. And they just stop and they turn around. And they say, I'm so sorry. What can I do? What would you do to that person? Yeah, I'd be like, thank you for stopping. I'm about to drop kick you. It's easier to hit a still target. Uh, I'm I'm not trying to help you at all. Somebody messes with me and my family, people that I love. If you wanted to make things right, okay, well, then you need to be here and you're going to die the most excruciating way I can think of. I want you to suffer in my sinful nature. What does God do when you kill his son? So He loves us? Exactly. And what does he require of you? He does not require your money. He does not require pain and suffering. He does not require a ridiculous, some sort of, although he could demand any of these things. He does not demand for you to die. He does not demand sacrifice from someone that you love. What does he ask of you? Repent and be baptized. What does that mean about how God feels about you? Yeah, like crazy. All he's trying to do, even in the worst thing, in the face of the worst thing you possibly could have done to him, which is kill his son, he's just looking for ways to get resolved. That's all God wants to do. God wants to give you grace. Because that's who God is. 
think it should tell us an awful lot about our God. Repent to be baptized. <laughs> and, and, and just in that story, by the way, he goes, look, one of the things that happened in baptism, which we'll get to in a little bit, but the things that happen in baptism are forgiveness, Holy Spirit, and then added to God's kingdom. We'll get into the depth of the craziness of that in just a second, but in that story that I tell normally, I'm like, Reese, come here. This, this is how ridiculous this is. Let's say Reese just killed my mom. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. <laughs> and so Reese is the murderer here. And so he's just like sitting. He, he's, he's, he turns around and he looks at me and he's like, I'm so sorry. What, what do I do? This is how crazy what God does is. It would be like this. If I go, Reese, I completely forgive you. And not, not just that. Reese, tell me, tell me about your dreams, man. Tell me about what you've always wanted to become. Let me, let me use my power and all my resources to make sure that happens so that you become the man you were supposed to be, that, wow. not, that you dreamed to be. And you know what? On top of that, you know what? Come move in with me. <laughs> move in with me, and you need, you need to come, and you need to live in my house, and you need to make sure you're with me and my family for our birthdays and for Thanksgiving and for Christmas because you're part of my family now. That's what God does moments after we kill Jesus. That's what God's trying to do. That's crazy. That's the good news, guys. Hey, you're dead. If for somebody that we're trying to help come back from the grave, they are dead in sin. But you do not have to stay dead. All God wants to do is help you to go from dead in sin to alive in Christ. So how do we do that? Well, we'll get to the must-ask question. I think I went through those. What should we do? Does God such a feel about you? Oh, and then have you responded like this? A lot of times it's where we start dealing with false doctrine. Which we're going to talk all about that next time. Dealing with false doctrine. But most of the time, what ends up happening is that it, people have heard, oh, well, how do you respond to the cross? Well, maybe you say a prayer, or you feel something, or you start going to church more. Well, the Bible says, what do we do when we find out this information? We repent and be baptized. Have you ever responded like this? I don't know. Okay, well, let's get into it. What would you do, or what would it look like for you to actually respond the way the Bible does? Well, I guess I'd repent and be baptized. Good call. <laughs> what would that look like? Oh, I don't know. Let's get into it. So, Acts 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized. Very simple. I don't know why that's doing that. So, well, let's talk about this one. Repent. Repentance comes first. I want to make this very clear. Most of the issues that we have, if, if I just go back one, one slide here, or two of the slides apparently. Oh. All right, yeah. Between these two things, which of these two things do we fight or we have fights or issues or tension between other people? Which one of these two normally actually is there more tension about? <laughs> Baptism. <laughs> Most people... Take a look at us and they say, ah, baptism, you're, you are one of those people. 
Today, I don't know if you realize this, but like 90% of mainstream Christianity says baptism is not necessary for the forgiveness of sins. That's not true. Most of American Christians, because literally every single Catholic believes that. So you got lots and lots of Catholics believe that baptism is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. So never mind. But for most people that we'll come in contact with, for evangelical America, they say baptism isn't necessary. So that's a lot of the fights that we have to deal with. When really the issue is this. Because if you can make, yeah, baptism is the way that God dispenses his grace. And it is one of the coolest resurrection studies you'll ever do. By the way, we get there. Baptism is so exciting. But this is just the way that God decides to raise you from the dead. How he does it. This, if we, if you get the fight here, then, then you're like, okay, yeah, we can fight about that all day long. This is the real hard issue. And that's what Satan wants. He wants us to stop thinking about repentance, which has always been the problem, and put it on something else. So we gotta talk about repentance. Alright, who here has read Ed's book about repentance? Okay, I will encourage you to read that book. If you can't afford it, just come and talk to me, and Ed will literally send you a PDF form, like version of it for free. Um, that's what happens when the guy who wrote the book leads your church. So, anyway, but repentance is not, you know, and this is one of the common attitudes that we have to deal with. Most people, when you ask them, what is repentance, what are some of the things that we get? Ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. What else? Feel bad. Feel bad. Uh huh. What else? You just gotta do it once. You gotta do it once, okay. Confess. Confess. Say you're sorry. Feel feel really bad. Pray to God. Say you're sorry and intend to never do it again. Yeah. yeah. What it's helpful to do when you study this out again, and not that we want to give them some kind of gotcha, but this is actually important. Before you start studying repentance, for most people that we study the Bible with, it's important for you to say, okay, what do you already know about repentance? And checking the pulse there. And writing it down on the notes. And when they say, ask for forgiveness, you go, okay, cool. Anything else? Uh, no, not really. Or, yeah, saying you're sorry. Feeling really bad about it. Intending to not do it again. Okay, cool. I'm writing it down. Anything else? Until they go, no, nah, not really, that's about it. Great. The reason that we do this is because what happens there is that if you start to study the Bible with people about repentance and it disagrees with what they originally thought, people very often will backtrack yeah. and say, yeah, I thought that the whole time. When actually, no, your real thought and impression of it was this. And it's just a way for them to have integrity with it because how many of us were, were exposed, a lot of times we want to backtrack. Yeah, That's just true. But we're not trying to go, ah, gotcha. It's more of, well, you see that this is actually different than what the Bible teaches. And so instead of allowing them to be under the illusion that, yeah, I've always known what repentance is, but to go, well, 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 no, you didn't. And the odds of you repenting are probably very small if you didn't actually know what it was. You know, 
And you might not always need that. For somebody who's truly seeking and truly humble, they'll be like, oh, wow, that is not what I thought repentance was. Wow, I need to do that. That's what we're hoping for. You write it down just in case Satan is trying to get in there and try to deceive someone and go, no, I, I had it all along. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cool. All right, so what is the actual word for repentance in the Greek original language? Meta. Noia. It's one word. Now, if you read if you read Ed's book, the uh, what he talks about is you're like, okay, well, where'd you get repentance out of metanoia? Um, actually, what ended up happening is in the fourth century, when Jerome, uh, this guy who's a, uh, a scholar in the Catholic Church, translated the Bible into Latin, what's called the Latin Vulgate, which is the, the common translation that was used for literally like a millennia. Um, what happened was he translated the word from Greek, from metanoia, to Latin. And this is actually a, one of the really terrible things that's happened as far as, you know, and it explains a whole lot of what's happened in the history of the church. But he translated this word as to penitentia, which is a Latin word, which is where we get the word pain, penalty, penitentiary, and where it ended up becoming penance. And so instead of this, this beautiful picture of metanoia, which we'll get into in just a second, this concept was corrupted and turned into something it was never meant to be, which is when you sin, do penance, which means to fill yourself with some kind of pain and associate your sin with enough negative feelings so that you won't do it again. As if you ever wondered why monks back in some of the Middle Ages would whip themselves? Well, the idea was that if there was enough pain that they could purge themselves of their sinful nature. And that's actually what a lot of people believed Christ was commanding when he says, it says, do ye penance, you know, do ye penance or perish. That makes sense? Yeah. What we actually see from this beautiful concept here is very different than that. Anybody know what meta means? Change. Yeah. Transform. Technically, no. But yes. The word meta is, it is change, but literally it is after. Okay, so if you read, if you read meta, it's after, which if it's after, then it implies a before and therefore a change. So if you talk to a Greek scholar or something like that, and you're like, well, meta means change. No, it means after. It can also mean with and a couple other things, but yeah, so that. Do you think of any words in English that start with meta? Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. And what's metamorphosis? After something happens to change. So yeah. Like metamorphosis after makes it complete. Yeah. Metamorph to change your form. So, that makes sense. That actually, metaphysics, you guys know where we get that? After physics. You want to know why it's called that? Because Aristotle wrote a book called Physics. And the next book that he wrote was all about things that were supernatural. There was no title to it. It was just the book that was after physics when they found it. So they literally called it Metaphysics. Very silly, but whatever. You know what? 
<laughs> and noia. Can you give any words in English that end with noia? Paranoia, what is that? Not just crazy, because I could also say erotic. Say what? Yeah, para, which is a Greek word as well. Yeah, it's a prefix that means on, about, or around. It can also mean skewed. And your noia, or your nous, N-O-U-S, or new Omicron, Upsilon, Sigma, nous is your mindset. So if you've got a paranoia, it means your mindset is skewed. Or off. Metanoia would mean to change your mindset. Now, when I could say, when you can read that, you're like, okay, so what does that mean? You change your mind. But it isn't that, hey, I don't want Panda Express anymore. I want Chick-fil-A. I changed my mind. I ain't feeling that anymore. That's not what it's talking about. It's something much deeper. It is the, the word noia or noose is more like the your paradigm, the way that you see things and the way you make sense of the world, the way that you process things, the way things make sense, the rules by which you play the game. And so, you know, the, the mindset of a lot of us in college, you know, if you talk to most people in college, the number one goal of college, depending on who you're talking to, let's say you're talking to an engineering student who's, let's say, a senior in the middle of their senior design course. What do you think their number one objective for, for college is? Yeah, to graduate, to get a job, get good grades. You talk to a freshman who's rushing a frat, do you think they have a very different doya or deuce? What's their number one objective? I'm enjoying, I'm living it up! And your noia or your noose can change even there. You see that? Makes sense? So, obviously, that's it's the rules by which you play the game. The really easy analogy for guys is sports teams and analogies. Like, or Sorry, sports teams and allegiances. I'm a Redskins fan. I look at the Cowboys and I think evil. I think putrescence. I think repugnance. I think you are disgusting, and I'm pretty sure Tony Romo is responsible for the Holocaust. If I was to, and I, I wear Redskins jerseys, I cheer for the Redskins, I know the Redskins songs, all that stuff. I know the players in the history, I think good, and when I look at the Cowboys, I think evil. If I was to meta my Noya, and this would be like nasty, disgusting, gross, filthy, metanoia here, to becoming a Cowboys fan, <laughs> then I would no longer look at the Cowboys as evil, I would say the Cowboys as good. Troy Aikman would no longer be the devil, and he would, and he would be much closer to a, you know, the, the prince, oh captain, my captain. I would look at the blue and white and silver and think, and get happy, and I would think the stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas. Yeah. I look at the Redskins and I think those filthy, <laughs> disgusting, racist. <laughs> Seriously, the Redskins thing, you gotta be honest. It's, it's rough. And so everything, I would burn my Redskins jerseys. I would no longer cheer for the Redskins. I would cheer for the Cowboys. That makes sense? My noia is completely changed. 
If you take a look at Acts 26, verse 18 through 21, this is Jesus' definition of repentance. Let's go over there real quick. Oh, you guys still with me here? Yeah. Oh, and here we've talked about this before but what happens is in verse uh, 19 through 21 Paul talks about I was not disobedient to the vision I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds if he said that I was not disobedient to the vision that I was supposed to tell them to repent if we go back and see what the vision said that's what repentance is okay so in verse 18, here's what Jesus says right before that in verse 17. I am sending you to them to do three things. To open their eyes, to turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to the power of God. What ends up happening about mindset changing. So, number one, when your eyes are opened, what happens? If your eyes are closed, what happens? Can't see. You can't see. If your eyes are open, what happens? You can see. But spiritually, what happens when your eyes are open? What can you now see? What? God. Sin. Righteousness. Judgment. All these things. Your eyes have been opened. You have been made aware of things that you were no longer aware of. That makes sense? So that's, but that's only the first part. Second part. To turn from darkness to light. If you're in the darkness... Can people see what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Coming into the light means what? Exposing. Exposing. But also John 3 is instructive in this as well. When you are in the darkness, what you are doing, is it good or bad? Bad. bad. Evil. So when you come into the light, what happens? Good. It's good. Literally, Jesus says, whoever comes in the light comes into light so that what they have done may be seen plainly and that by God. So that, hey, what I'm doing is righteous, but ultimately I want everyone to be able to see this too. I'm not hiding in darkness. Which he's talking to Nicodemus there, who literally came to him at night. Who basically like, I'm trying to do my good deeds, but I'm doing it in the dark because I don't want anyone to see it. Because I'm trying to not get thrown out of the synagogue. Jesus is like, hey, you coming to light, boy? (laughs) That's what you need to do this, and so people can see what you're doing. Just kind of a cool little thing there. So, fun stuff. Um, so what that looks like for us is that those are the behavior modification things that there. You do come to light. You do confess, and you do start to try to change, to do good things, to do things that are in the light. But then there's the last part, which is the power of Satan and the power of God. That word power there is the word exousia which means authority. Back then, who had authority over people? Caesar. Kaiser, yes. The emperor. Kings, queens, all them. If you were a citizen in one kingdom, what kind of authority does your ruler have over you? Complete, utter. They had all authority over you. They said something would happen, and they commanded you to do something, what would happen? You would do it. And your life, like, even think about this. You had Athens and Sparta in Greece, okay? They weren't necessarily kingdoms, actually. There was democracies and whatnot. But there was one kingdom, 
in Sparta or a city-state in Sparta, and if you were born in Sparta, you would be like the Spartans. If you were born in Athens, you'd be like the Athenians. If you swapped, you'd have to become like that. So if you go from one kingdom to another kingdom, and going from one authority to another authority, it is a macro change. Okay? Coming into the light is more like micro changes. Macro changes is, I am now under the authority of God. I have broken, I am no longer obeying King Satan, who is the king of this world. And I'm now obeying King Jesus. Does that make sense? So when we talk about repentance, there is an aspect of awareness. There's an aspect of confession. There's an aspect of change, like small changes. But then there is a complete and total mind shift change. That now my enemy is now my king. And my king is now my enemy. What that looks like for us, your academics used to be your king. And now it's kind of your enemy. Jesus is your king. Your reputation, money, friends, sex. These things used to be your king. No longer. Jesus is your king. Make sense? Yeah. Cool. So that's... That is what repentance is, according to Jesus. And I love that version. So. But you're like, okay, great, Matt, thanks. So if I'm taking something through these Bible studies and we're talking about repentance, they're supposed to repent about what? And this is where what I can do to help you is very limited in this setting. Because there are so many things people need to repent of. Yeah. Uh, this is why, remember when we talked through doing the problem study, and we tried to help hone in on one core sin? You guys remember that? Mm -hmm. Instead of trying to figure out every little tiny thing anybody's ever done wrong, yep. we tried to boil it down to a couple core sins that, in, that um, in, inform every other sin. Mm -hmm. Well, this is where this will help you. Because if you have identified that one particular core sin that affects just about everything else, it's like a root problem, then your question is pretty easy. So instead of trying to fix a thousand things, like, so what do you need to do? Well, you need to get up earlier and read your Bible and be more disciplined, be more considerate, apologize to your parents, and uh, you know, be on time to things, and do better in school, and stop looking at pornography, and stop going to parties, and stop, I mean, like that's overwhelming, just those 10 things. But if you can help somebody repent in selfishness, all those things will be impacted, won't they? Yeah. If you start helping someone deal with a core root sin, all the other things, those branches, those symptomatic problems and a deeper issue, they'll start to be affected. And that's what we want to bring about. So what are some things that you can end up you know, focusing on? Well, there's a lot. Um, the few core ones that I very often see, and these are very American, um, they will be different things depending on where you go. Pride, greed, anger, deceit, selfishness, rebellion, people-pleasing, worldliness, these are very, very American. Okay, These are common to people in general, so you probably will find pride everywhere. Rebellion, you probably will find everywhere, but in, like, in more uh, collectivist cultures, probably less so. Probably less rebellion and more people-pleasing and compliance to family. Yeah. 
Idolatry is another one. I didn't put that up there. Worldliness, depending on where you're at, may increase or not. If you're in a really religious area, probably less worldliness and probably more pride. But if you are, if you're in the middle of like Vegas, and it's live it up, well, it's probably going to be more worldliness and rebellion, pride and greed. If you're dealing with people that come from rougher backgrounds, anger, deceit, probably less people pleasing, maybe some of that, but probably more rebellion. And that's where a person, I can't tell you what each person's issue is. That's where we need the Holy Spirit to expose those things. And you take those things and you deal with them as they come. And that's where you get a lot of input of really, you know, getting help from people that have seen it before. Hey, once you identify those things or or help me identify these things because I want to help this person. Mm -hmm. And there are not, there's no surefire way to do this, guys. This is where you got to be great listeners. That as people answer questions of every, when you start studying the Bible with them, things will come out. The way that they react to things from Jesus. The way that they react to you. This is why it's so important to even spend time with them outside of your Bible studies, to see how a person reacts and responds. If you hang out with someone and they're always sitting in the corner, they're just always very insecure, well, that's actually probably a pride issue to talk through. That's probably a selfishness thing. If you're playing basketball with someone and they're dropping F-bombs when they lose... Probably anger, some worldliness going on there, but also probably pride. (laughs) I also think that most, for guys, just about everything comes down to pride. It's very likely. But these other things, too. Does that that make sense? Yes. Um, Katie, I don't know if there's anything you want to add there. Um, I think with with girls, you just want to ask a lot about their thought processes, like why they make their decisions the way that they do. Um, when you're seeing sin, or you're seeing that they're not doing something, um, or they're quiet, or they're just equal, or whatever, you just want to ask a lot of questions about like what's going through their head as they make that decision. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, great point. I think there's a, um, there's a part of your CPR packets that talks about getting to the heart. Um, and it, there's no guarantee. So how do you do this? It's a lot of prayer, a lot of scriptures, a lot of listening. But questions like that, uh, in, in my mind, the way I do it, my method is is I go hands, head, heart of what happened. Like what what do you do or what, what are the behaviors? Then that's hands. Then head, what convinced you that that was a good idea? Why did you think that was a good idea? Or what told you that this was a good thing to do? And then heart of where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Why is that important to you? So, like if somebody is, you know, uh, going to parties, it's like, why did you think that was a good idea? Or what, what, what made you think that, that was a good idea? Well, I was, I was, uh, I was lonely, and, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to go connect with people. Why is it so important that you connect with people even by maybe compromising in that way? Because I feel like a loser. Oh, there's insecurity and pride there. Versus somebody goes, okay, so why'd you go to that party? Man, because I'm having fun. I'm here to do me in college. That's selfishness. Or you go, so why is that so important that you have fun? Because you only live once. You know, I want to experience as much as I can. Selfishness. And that'll be very different than somebody who's just, who's maybe even rebellion there. Like, so why did you go, why'd you go to that party? 
You know what, because I just want to cut loose, because I never could in high school, because my parents didn't let me. Okay, why is it so important that you do that? Because I wasn't allowed to be my own person. Rebellion. Same action, different mindset. So Katie brings up a really good point. So, but this is also important. Our job is not just to make people feel bad and pull the gotchas. Like, I am really, it's like bird watching for sin. And you're like, hey, look, I found all these things that's wrong with you. <laughs> Boy, are you messed up. That's not going to help anybody. But what you want to do is help people not just identify that these are issues, because they probably know they're issues. But if they don't, you take them and you help them develop godly characteristics. So it's instead of, hey, you're really proud, you stink. So still going to hell. It's, no, let me help you. Create a character of humility. It's not just giving them scriptures that show them how bad pride is, but showing them how great humility is. Philippians 2 is the great humility passage. You can live like Jesus, have relationships like Jesus. God exalts you at the end. But then in that way that people, and also in James where it talks about fights, happen and quarrels happen because of pride and selfishness and you don't get what you want man peace comes and then you're in alignment with God's will I mean oh my gosh how amazing is that selfishness replaced by selfless service you live a life instead of being all about you you're, you're connected with people you're empathetic and you have real relationships and you are living a life that, that, that people look at like oh my gosh this person is so giving and so selfless a life of meaning and you know what happens after that you're drawn back to them and God can use you wow how amazing instead of living a life of rebellion where you're constantly kicking against the goads you live a life of obedience to God where you say hey I will please you and unless the Lord builds the house its builders labor in vain and then your life is actually directed, guaranteed, and uh, uh, guided and built by God himself. Oh my gosh, how amazing is that? And instead of worldliness, to go, hey, let me help you build something that's holy. Let me help you become, because you were meant to be set apart and different. And God meant you to be this way, just as Jesus was holy and set apart. God, this is you dead in sin. Let me help bring you back from the dead by pointing you actually all of these things back to Jesus really and help you be resurrected as he was resurrected but that's making sense yeah. not just sticking negative like well you're wrong you're a liar you're worldly stop that yeah. to bring them to here's what Jesus called you to be here's what this looks like let me help you and this is what a resurrected life will look like. And everything points back to Jesus. Yes, Chance? Um, just out of curiosity, and I don't know if you were going here, but what would be some of the opposites for the four you left out? Or the four you may be getting? I, I wasn't. Uh, what were the ones that I left out? There's like greed, deceit, people-pleasing, anger. So, so instead of anger, it would be grace, peace, probably. Uh, instead of greed, generosity. The generosity of Jesus, the peace of Jesus. Uh, what else did I say? People pleasing and deceit. Yeah, people pleasing would go from God, people pleasing to God pleasing. And the last one was deceit, deceit, deceit integrity. 
And then what about idolatry? Yeah, putting God, you know, worshiping God. Yeah. <laughs> God worshiper, true. So what? Integrity. Yeah. And and just remember all these things. It's even. And maybe you have great examples in the Old Testament or stories in the Bible. Remember, everything points back to Jesus. That even the Old Testament heroes. The only reason they're any good is because they somewhat slightly resemble Jesus in one little small area. Yeah. Most of those Old Testament guys and women still messed up. <laughs> but they're all pointing to Jesus. And so that's where we need to have grace. This is where your scripture banks. You need to learn a lot of scripture so that you can help the people that you're around constantly to come back to Jesus and these things. And, and remember, like... Women, you're going to... Wow, this is so weird. Women on this side, guys on this side. It's like a, it's like a synagogue. Except for Sydney. Anyway, but... Way to go, Coleman. Oh. Why are you next to Penny? Anyway. Um, so, yeah. But everything everything comes back to Jesus there. And, um, I totally lost my train of thought. Right, yes, you need to learn scriptures to help the people that you will be around. That And this will change based on where you go. Yeah. Because, again, when you're a single, it's different struggles. And you've you got to get, get a job and a career. You're wrestling through that. Different struggles than when you're a college student. Very different than when you start, when you are, say, the Bible with a married person. Different issues. Is this all making sense? Yeah. So I can't tell you. But this is where you guys have to go back. And if you want to be able to, to be an ambassador the way Jesus calls you to, go and learn the word. Go and find a bunch of scriptures. Not just, And start with the ones that really help you. There are, you know, there's a whole Bible for them. Start there and then branch out. And not that you are only studying the Bible to, or like, you know, have your quiet times and memorize scripture for other people, but I mean, that, that'll help you as well. Yeah. <laughs> but then we're also making sure that we're always adding to our scripture bank. That makes sense. Yeah. So, and, and repentance is not a, a never-ending. It, it's sorry. It's it's a never-ending process. We're always becoming more and more like Jesus. But when we really the, the question will definitely be after this. The follow-up question will be: So, at what point do you know they're ready for baptism? I don't know. <laughs> I don't have I don't have a bingo card for that. You know, there's not a point system. But I do think that, that there, it's where we, again, pray for discernment, pray for the Holy Spirit to make it clear, get advice from people that are, that are more, discern, or more discerning than us. But repentance and godly sorrow is clear. Yeah. When people are earnest and eager and indignant and alarmed and have longing and concern and zealous and readiness to see justice done, as it talks about in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 through 11, you can't fake that. Yeah. And it's pretty clear. I, I always go back to this. If somebody if somebody was to get baptized, they're basically saying Jesus is Lord. Is there anything in their life that they can control that would make it so that that statement is not true? There are some things that we can control and some things that we can't. <laughs> your pornography that you still have stored on your computer, you can delete that. Your stash of drugs and your drug paraphernalia, yeah, you can stop that. 
your immoral relationship, yeah, you can control that. Going to the club, going to parties, you can control that. Forgiving your family, actually, yes, you can control that. Yeah. Those things you can control. Some things we can't control. We can do better with character things. We can do better with pride. We can do better with selfishness. But outside of taking a melon baller to your brain and lobotomizing yourself, there's only so far we can go with that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's the things that are in your control that you can do something about. If you can do something, then you should do something. If not, then it's like, okay, well, have you taken a step in the right direction? Sure. And remember, when we say Jesus is Lord, we screw up all the time still, don't we? But here's the difference. And I, I explain it like this. Christians and non-Christians, there may not be a difference right away with how much we sin. The big difference is how we react and respond when we see our sin. Somebody who's not a Christian will go, that's whatever. A disciple will go, oh my gosh, let me change this. Make sense? But I do the Jesus is Lord test. If there's something that you can control that would make it that Jesus is not Lord of your life, yeah, you're not quite ready. But when you're there, okay, cool, go for it. Because yeah. you're saying Jesus is Lord, you better make it true. Any questions about that? Hopefully that's simple. I have no idea what's on here. Oh, here we go. Yep. So how, how do you do this? Scripture, prayer and fasting. There might come a point where they actually don't know how to do this, and so you've got to walk with them. They may not know how to, again, go make disciples. They may not know how to get deep with other people. They may not know how to forgive. You might need to walk with them to do this stuff. Yeah. You don't do it for them, but you walk with them, and you encourage them while they're doing it. I remember one of the big ones for, for me is that back when I was in Harrisonburg, there was a guy that had actually stolen some guns before he was a disciple. He was actually on parole. And the guy that he stole the guns from had kind of a feeling that it was him. And he said, if I find out that you stole my guns, I'm reporting you to the police. If that happened and he got reported, he'd go back to jail for 13 years. He stole the guns. The problem is he sold them. He didn't have them anymore. And he didn't have the money to pay them back. So basically we're like, well, you've got to go make it right. We're like, okay. What we'll do is literally we'll go and you, you talk to this guy. And if he calls the cops on you, because the guy, you know, maybe what we'll do is we'll know you're serious and we'll baptize you literally in between the time that the cops get there. <laughs> so you might be in jail, but you'll be saved. And in jail. <laughs> your body may be in jail, but your soul will be free. Anyway, so he goes up to the door. And I, I remember we went with him. He's shaking. Shaking, walks up to the door and tells him the whole story. I stole your guns and I sold them. I don't have any more. I'm trying to get my life right with Jesus, and this is one of the things I gotta come, I gotta ready to see justice done, is what I think he said. And the guy looked at him, and it was like the longest, like two minutes no, not two minutes, two seconds ever. He just looks at him, and we're like, what's gonna happen? And he goes, oh, I got insurance money for those guns. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Done. 
<laughs> now, there is no way that I could go and do that repentance for him. Right. But we could be there. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, walking with him. And then just remember this. Where does, where does repentance come from? The Holy Spirit is what converts. It's not us. It's not our heavy-handedness. Heavy it's not our encouragement either. It's the Holy Spirit that converts. Yeah. Make sense? Questions about that? Cool. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. Uh, this is a great scripture. I'm actually not going to go through this right now. This is my favorite scripture in the whole Bible. But what it does say is that you no longer live for yourself, but you live for him. That's another way to test whether or not somebody's worth they needs to be. Also, afterwards, a big one is in verse 16 of this, where it says, From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Yeah. And what that word means, regard someone to value them. And so a lot of repentance comes in helping people value other people. This is a big one. Wow. So sometimes the way that we see people and value them is very worldly. We look at people and we value them based on their appearance, their looks, their money, their cool, their suave factor, their attractiveness, their fashion sense, their race, their age, their education, <coughs> whatever it might be. We value people based on that. And this is where we have to get into things like racism. We have to get into things like prejudice. But for the most part, in our day and age, the biggest one that I come across, particularly with guys, is apathy towards people. Yeah. That most people, the worst part is that it's not that they have some crazy negative value of people, it's that people hold no value for them. That people can pop in their earbuds and walk from one end of campus to the other, not talk to a single person, and the only thing that they feel is, hey, there are people in front of me in line for my Starbucks. There are people around me in my class, but I don't really, you know. The only time I interact with them is if I already know them, if I want something from them, or if I've been assigned in a group project with them. And so part of that is even helping people have value for other people. So that's a big one that you're going to want to get into as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Cool. I'm pretty sure this is a messed up slide. Yeah. Okay, so here we are. Repent to be baptized, so we spend time. Resurrection there. But once we've done the repentance, and repentance does occur, we get to get into baptize. Okay, I don't know why that's doing all that, but okay, great. This is actually has become one of my favorite things to study. It gets, it gets me so excited to talk about baptism because it's where grace takes a front row. It is the star of the show, grace in baptism. Because baptism is the place where you come in contact with God's grace. Just think about it for a second. Like we talked about with, with Reese before. God wants to forgive you. And in baptism, he forgives your sin. That's what happens in Acts 2. And that, that, very often I'll start there. Like what happens in baptism? And I'll ask people, checking the pulse, what do you think happens in baptism? And they're not sure. They might say washing your sins away. Great, cool, fun, awesome. Anything else? Most people don't understand how incredible baptism really is. If you think about it, he's wiping away your sin, 
But then the crazy part, because that actually baptism like that, forgiveness of your sins baptism, that existed in the Old Testament. Literally, you walk around Jerusalem and there are hundreds of these like, they're called mikvahs. They're basically baths. And there's stairs going down one side and you walk down into it, dunk under the water, and you're cleansed and purified and you walk back up, you're forgiven of your sins. But you know what happens? When you come back out the other side, you can sin literally right out the gate. And then you know what happens when you sin again? You got to come back. It's why there were sacrifices after sacrifice after sacrifice. That was in the Old Testament. Even John the Baptist for, uh, did a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. What Jesus had that's different is not just that your sins are forgiven and the slate is wiped away clean, but now you are given the Holy Spirit of God to live inside you. And so now you are imputed or given, credited, the righteousness of Jesus himself. Think about that for a second. Think about the smartest kid in your class. Can you imagine, if you think about your grades, wouldn't it be nice if when the professors took a look at your grades, that there was some kind of mistake made and it was actually the smartest kid in the class's grades that they looked at? Yes. That's what happens on crack. <laughs> Basically, God takes a look at you and he doesn't see what you did. He doesn't see the nasty mess of sin that you've been living in. He goes, all I see is the righteousness of Jesus himself. All 33 years of his perfection is now credited to you. God looks at you and he doesn't see somebody who's been rebellious. He sees someone who's been obedient. Not somebody who's been proud, but somebody who's been humble. Not somebody who's been selfish, but has been selfless and giving and a servant. It's like you did all those things. <coughs> what the what? <laughs> Crazy. And then he adds you to his family. It's insane. But there's another aspect of this that very often we forget, but we don't address. Which is, this is the point where God brings you back to life. And I did a word study about resurrection, which is the word anastasis, which is where we get the word, the name Anastasia, by the way. It's Greek, anastasis, it means to get up or to rise, but it's crazy. In the New Testament, resurrection is not linked with anything but baptism for us. Go to Romans 6. Romans 6. So want to read that for us? Verses 1 through 5? Thank you. Thanks, Michaela. <laughs> Wait, Romans 6, 1 through 6? 1 through 5. Uh, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died just then. We can, how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, he, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Awesome. Okay. So it's not just, like that would have been enough just to get your sins forgiven and the Holy Spirit and add to God's kingdom. But here, what does it say happens to you and Jesus in baptism? That you are united with him. So that the way to sin is death. Jesus died. This is how we get counted into that. That's where we intersect with Jesus. And now, just as he was died, we die. Just as he was buried, we're buried. And the best part is just as he rose, death works backwards, that he did not stay dead, that when you're dead in sin, before you get baptized, you are dead and decaying bones in the ground. But when you're baptized, <coughs> you are resurrected like Jesus. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Here's the picture. I don't know if you guys remember the picture that you can draw to help teach this. I am not a very good artist. Beautiful. Guys, right. straight up. A beard. But you are Jesus. This is Jesus. <laughs> With a beard. Hair. Yeah, you know, Jesus dies on a cross. <laughs> okay, this is a little bit more involved. He's buried. <laughs> Those are the soldiers. Yeah, the shield. And then he is raised with beard still to a new and glorious, perfect body that, by the way, can walk through walls and straight up. So. But still eats food, which is cool. He's not dead anymore. He did not stay dead. I don't know if you guys realize. Do you believe? Do you know you believe that? You guys know that you believe that somebody died, like straight up died, stupid dead. And then three days later, he did not stay dead. He came back to life. And so, here's what happened to Jesus, and in baptism, you die, you are buried, and when you come up, you are raised. However, here's what I just want to put this, this is true, that you are resurrected, but because you're united <coughs> with him from this point on, it's kind of like your righteousness doesn't exist, and from this point on, you're you're with him. You can get a beard, it's fine. You get the righteousness of be credited with his beard. <laughs> Even the sisters. 
This can kind of help the parallelism there to understand this. But you need to be resurrected. You're dead. You need to be resurrected. That happens in baptism. Colossians 2. Let's go over there. You guys with me so far? Yeah. Yeah. This is so cool. I want to get baptized. You did got baptized. I was there. Um, (laughs) I baptized you. (laughs) I think you forgot. (laughs) 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 All right. Colossians 2. So let me read verse 11 and 12. <coughs> Maya, please. <coughs> In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Okay, anybody know why they're talking about circumcision, or it's just awkward? Because there was a split in the church about like legalism need necessary the necessity <coughs> of circumcision to be like Christ. Yeah, God gave Abraham circumcision in order to prove that you were part of God's people. Yeah. And so that was the mark of entrance into being one of God's people. So again, there was a split, like Stefan said. Um, and so that's why I started with it was an entrance ritual. So now, the entrance ritual is not circumcision. The entrance ritual ritual is baptism. That is where you are marked, but you are marked deeper. It is not a physical marking. It is one of the heart. Yes, Chance? Um, just out of curiosity, how would you say, or if you would, like the baptism that somebody received wasn't the right Great question. Do you mind if I wait oh, to the no, next no, passage? No, because I, it's a it's a huge one. It's like, yeah, I got baptized. Well, let, the next passage is kind of the slam dunk for me on that one. So, um, but Colossians two. Anyway, that's what I was talking about. Um, circumcisions, and that's just weird. Because otherwise, it's like, why are you talking about that? It's strange. Is this about that? Uh, what, what is it? I was going to say, like, so if you were to, because I know some people are like, oh, that doesn't feel a word. I guess you're talking about it next week. Yeah, that, this is the passage, the singular passage that allows me to sleep at night, that connected for me the dots about how baptism is quite clearly not a work in any way, shape, or form. The, and, and I'll get into it a little bit more, but next time we talk about it, like the actual stuff, all I can tell you right now, for the sake of time, is that the one time that the Bible mentions baptism being a work, it goes out of its way to talk about it in the most technical Greek word that we could possibly have to prove that it is without a doubt not a work. That, that thing, I'll, I'll get into it later, but yes, that's not even close to being a work. But what also helps me is even outside of that, if, if you're not a Greek grammarian, is this part here. That having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, which that's the big thing here. You're buried, but also raised, you didn't stay dead, through what? Your faith. So faith, and not just faith, in what? The working of God, the power of God. So your faith, the power of God, working together, and where does it bring you back from the dead? Baptism. 
In the same way that prayer is actually a work of faith, too. So it's not, it, and by the way, it's God that's doing it. Who does the working? God. God works. Are you working? No. No, it's your faith. God's the one that works. This is a silly, silly argument about whether or not baptism is a work or baptism is necessary. It's always repentance is the issue. But take a look here. Your resurrection comes where? Baptism. God wants to bring you back from the dead. Now, what does it take? Your faith. Cool? Then the last one here, let's go to 1 Peter 3. Okay. Come on, Matt. 1 Peter, flop. So we want to read verses 18 through Bethlehem City. Um, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteousness for the unrighteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He has put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. You disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism and now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, cool. So, once again, just to go with our baptism and resurrection, that resurrection happens in baptism. How does this save you? Baptism, which, by the way, it says very clearly, baptism does save you. But it's not that your body's messed up, it's that your soul's messed up. And it saves you through what? The resurrection. the resurrection of Jesus. We don't always think about this, but we need resurrection to be at the core of this. CPR, we're bringing people from dead in sin to alive in Christ. It's all about the resurrection, bringing people back. It does talk about here, to answer Chance's question, that it says, baptism now saves you also, but it's not the cleansing of, of not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience. The Greek word there is also the appeal of a good conscience. You're appealing to God. But what's a pledge? A promise. Okay? Making an appeal to God is also a promise in that way. Like, I'm, I'm appealing to you. But it says from a clear conscience. What does that mean? You have a conscience? Yes. <laughs> it would, yes. <laughs> like, you were aware of your sin. And then... So, like, you clear it. Yes, it can be that part of that, too. Yeah, Katie? Um, there's nothing that's you hidden. Yeah. You're, when you make your pledge and your promise, and when you make your appeal to God, it is done with integrity. It is done with without your fingers behind your back crossed. Mm -hmm. It is done. I am promising, and I mean it. Mm -hmm. I am appealing to you with a good conscience, not hidden anything. Hmm. So what I always ask Chance is that if repentance and baptism is necessary, do you think that you repented in the way that the Bible says to you? <coughs> or when you come here, when you when you were baptized before, what what happened? What was different afterwards? Why did you make that? Well, I don't know. It's a good thing. Well, do you think you made a pledge of a good conscience? And this is why infant baptism is right out, because there's no pledge of a good conscience made. And also Colossians 2, it works through the, the faith. An infant doesn't have any faith. I would argue that infants don't have any sin either to be cleansed of, but that's you know, just me. Um, but 
here definitely, if you have been baptized before, let's say you're baptized at 7 or 8, or maybe 11, 12, something like that. But the promise and the pledge that you made was not one of Jesus is Lord, but of this is a good thing to do, and I mean to you know, follow Jesus, but it wasn't I cleansed my life and I, I repented and there was fruit in keeping with repentance. You know, Or maybe here's a better thing. What was your life after baptism? Something interesting that you see, sadly, more often than we should, um, is this. Can somebody turn the camera over here? I should just, yeah, do that just a little bit. There you go. Thank you, Cindy. Okay. So, Um, okay, so a lot of times what ends up happening, if we do a little timeline here, people, people kind of like, you know, when you're, and let's go with age down here, is that when you're young, zero, you don't have a lot of sin, okay, somewhere around here, you know, maybe, maybe it's five, maybe it's, not, I don't know, whatever. You start kind of messing around a little bit, okay? But here's sadly what ends up happening. Let's take somebody that gets baptized at maybe age 11. <coughs> and this is where baptism is. Unfortunately, what ends up happening a lot is that here, sin starts to increase. Maybe it goes up and down, but... It goes up, up, like way up. So here's here's high school, you're 17, college hits. Or maybe you take a little dive here because you found you went to a, a church camp or something like that. And you kind of really got into it. So for some reason, everybody when they were younger was into God. I don't think that's actually true. <laughs> and then they go to college and it's boom, right back up again. Do you think your pledge was made of a good conscience? Or is it one that you're kind of working the system? When it really should be like this. You know, maybe you had maybe you had booms and stuff like that, but when baptism hits, you start to plummet. You may have issues and it may go up, down, but baptism increases your godliness, not your wickedness. That's actually what Romans 6 is all about. Shall we go on sinning? That grace may increase by no means. We died to sin. How could we live in it longer? Can you can you uh, scoot it back? So anyway, that's what I would say. Was it made of a good conscience? Was there any repentance that happened with it? Because if there wasn't, what did it really do? Any questions about that? Okay. So I put this. Before. In front of all of us, it's like, if, if this is what God is trying to do, if God looks at you and all he's trying to do is he's trying to give you the righteousness of Jesus and bring you back from the dead. And he's trying to take your faith and work to raise you from the dead. And he's trying to save you and credit Jesus' resurrection towards you. What does that mean about how God feels about you? He loves you so much because you done killed his son and your sin killed you, and he's just trying to bring you back. Most of us, if our enemies were killed, what would we want to have happen? 
Just take what's happening with ISIS right now. ISIS messes with France. You have raids on all these ISIS operatives. And there's a celebration when one of them dies. Or think about this. Wasn't there a little part of you that felt a little safe when you heard Osama bin Laden was dead? Or any of those ISIS operatives? The top guy was killed. The mastermind is dead. We look at our enemies and we're like, good. Stay dead. That's what we were to God. And he goes, I just want to bring you back. Would any of us want to bring back Osama bin Laden? No. And that's where we have to get our hearts changing. This is a side preaching point. I'm about to preach now. But has anybody here prayed for ISIS? The Bible says, Jesus says, you've got to pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It is not righteous to hate ever. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. I want to challenge you guys for the next week. Pray for ISIS every day. Pray for those people. Pray for terrorists. Just side note. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. And if Jesus looked at you and said, you're my enemy, you put me on this cross, but I'm dying to save you and I want to bring you back, that's what you need to do. I'm always inspired by, there was a, in the Middle Ages, uh, there's a, a man, Francis of Assisi, who uh, established the Franciscan Order of the Monks. What a stud. This guy, when thousands of knights jumped on ships to go kill Muslim invaders in the Holy Land, Francis of Assisi, Francis of Assisi jumped on a boat to go into the Holy Land in order to convert the leader of the Muslims. He was like, I, I don't want to kill you. I want to convert you. I want to save you. That needs to be our hearts. <coughs> Sorry, tangent. Anyway, we got to have our mindsets be this, that baptism is resurrection, that it is a supernatural, amazing event and occurrence that comes, and that's what we're bringing about. And the more we can realize this, the more our thesis statement that we've been talking about since the beginning, who brings about conversion? Come on, guys. Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural process. It always has been and always will be. That baptism equals your resurrection. And this is what needs to fire us up. That God is pouring out his grace because he loves you so much and just wants to bring you back from the dead. <coughs> but what we need to do is we need to repent and be baptized. And God will bring us back from the dead. And at the end of this study, here's the homework. Because, you know, you don't want to hold people off from doing this. You want people to get right with God as soon as we can. But what you are going to want to do is use the inventory of sin that the person made to help them identify a specific plan of repentance. Complete with giving them scriptures to identify when they are being sinful. 
examples from Jesus to imitate in order to be righteous. Specific challenges. Like if somebody is selfish, to give them challenges like, okay, I want you to find, you know, I challenge you to find somebody to serve this week. To go out of your way to pour your life out. And give them an example from scripture like, figure out how to wash somebody's feet. Maybe not literally, but figuratively. And timetables. These are important. If you just say, yeah, you should do that eventually, a lot of times people will go, well, I don't know if I'm going to do that. Or it's kind of open-ended. Say, well, do you think you could do that in the next three days? Do you think you could have that conversation in the next few days? And what would that take? Then they start thinking, okay, what's it going to look like? Well, it means I need to pick up the phone and talk to my mom uh, between that class and that class. And then that might actually happen. So these things, helping them figure out a timetable um, with scriptures and challenges with a plan of specific repentance. That makes sense? Yeah. Cool. And that's the end. And the purpose of this is so that repentance can happen. That they have the tools with scripture to do it. That they have the challenges so that they can bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the timetable, just so that there's a little bit of, for them, I am going to do this. And not just intend to do this. Make sense? Yeah. Cool. I think... That is actually the end of this particular study. So, do we have any questions about this one? Chance, you have a question? Yes, I do. Shocked am I. So, um, I guess, like, just, like, going off, like, this is, like, the only thing kind of based off, like, like, Apollos, or, like, when John says, like, I'll baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Could someone make the argument of, like, oh, okay, my mind's changed, but I don't need to do the ceremony. Sure, somebody can make the argument. To which you would say. <laughs> to which I would to which I'd say, okay, so let's say you, you have changed your mindset and maybe you've done some good things. Mm -hmm. So who brings you back from the dead? God. So when does that happen? When I change my mind. No. It never ever I, I went through. It does not equate repentance with resurrection. That if we if if you say like well I've done these things well then you're saying by your own efforts that you can bring yourself back from the dead and you've made the locus of your salvation your work. I don't know a single dead person that can bring themselves back based on their own efforts. In fact, they've all stayed dead. It's always done by God. And if you say like, okay, I've done this, then you're like, okay, well, so you're saying by your own power and your own ability, your own work, you have saved yourself. You have done this, but it can only be done. And God says, this is where I do it. And this is how I do it. Make sense? Going off of like what Chance said, um, what if that person got baptized at like an age of like seven or eight and they did like um, repent of a lot of things or like act like, behave like a Christian, but at the age of seven, they weren't able to, like, understand, fully understand baptism. Yeah, baptismal cognizance is what you need. Right? Well, and, and that's where you go back to, think, you, you ask the question of, so what did it mean for you? Because there, if somebody changed some things about their life at age six or seven, 
it could be that they were compliant with their parents and they're compliant with people, but did they, because the big thing is <coughs> you made Jesus Lord, right? That's your good confession. Is that what was actually happening? Or did you make some behavioral changes that your heart didn't change? And that, that's where the metanoia comes in, repentance. It's not just a change of action. Praise God, because if that was the case, then we'd all be stuck. But it is that, hey, Jesus is Lord of my life. And a lot of times you can ask, you know, what happened after? Like, you know, if, if it's, I went to a lot more church and read my Bible, okay, cool, that's great. But was Jesus actually Lord? Was it, you try to go out and actually, you know, make disciples? Um, thing, things that were not done compulsory that your parents brought you along and you just kind of borrowed their faith for a little bit. And I, a lot of times what I try to do is make sure that people understand that I'm not disparaging. I'm sure what you did, you're trying to do things that please God. I'm sure you weren't trying to do anything that was wrong. But was it a salvation thing? And if repentance and the, the kind of discipleship that Jesus calls us to have didn't happen, then no. You can get baptized, but if, if your parents are still Lord, then no, it didn't actually mean it. So, um, people like make the argument a lot that they were baptized by the Holy Spirit, like kind of a tense of what the scripture that Jesus brought up. So like, what can you say for that? Yeah, um, I think, I always ask people, because normally when people bring that up, it's they found something on the internet. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? You're baptized by the Holy Spirit. Because most of the time that what it means they felt a feeling of a religious experience. You know, they felt a burning or something like that. I'm like, amen. You know, I, I don't doubt at all that the Holy Spirit is working on your heart. The Holy Spirit says it's going to come to convict the world with regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment, right? But if it came and went, that's actually not what the Bible talks about, you being born again of the Holy Spirit. You know, actually, that, that, that actually sounds more like Old Testament stuff. And when you also you take a look at you take you look at Acts two, it is a baptism of the Holy Spirit, not just coming on you for a moment, but living within you. And you look at Romans eight, where it talks about you have to have the Spirit living within you in order to be one with Christ. And if somebody had a, a, a moment where they felt close and then it left and came back and you know, all that stuff. That's most of the time what people are talking about. That's actually not a rebirth of the Holy Spirit, but that is a being worked upon by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And, you know, biblically speaking, the, the other thing is you can talk about that people talk about there's a water baptism and a spiritual baptism. And they might look at something like um, John 3, verse 5, which says you have to be born of water and the Spirit, right? Again, in Greek, that word there, it's, those are two things. Uh, hudas and pneuma, water and spirit, and they're governed by one definite article, which means it's one event. In grammar, in Greek grammar, when two nouns are governed by one article, it is a single event every time. You ask any Greek scholar, any Greek grammarian, anybody, Jesus is referring to one act. There's not two separate baptisms. By the way, Ephesians 4 also talks about there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God, one Father, all. There's not a water baptism and a spirit baptism. That's Ephesians 4. So all those things together, I'm like, what are you talking about? 
And even Acts 10, where somebody looks at Cornelius, where the Holy Spirit comes, by the way, upon them, and they begin to speak in tongues. You know what happens right after that? He says, what's to stop these men from getting baptized? So he baptizes them. It's not like, oh, you've got the Holy Spirit. we we got to rethink this whole baptism thing. It's, yeah. it's actually God marking, showing Peter and dealing with Peter's actually kind of racist heart towards Gentiles. Say, hey, I have poured out my spirit upon the Gentiles too. Get baptized so that it can live within you. That makes sense? Cool. Other questions? Seven. Uh, like, um, so even before you get baptized, the Holy Spirit can still use you. Yeah, but it just doesn't... absolutely. I was reading this morning in First um, Samuel how Saul, um, the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul in First Samuel, and it literally says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be a new man. But then it leaves him as soon as it came. In Psalm fifty-one, David says, "Do not take your Holy Spirit from me." Do you guys remember that? What? So, this is what? Psalm 51. Um, yeah. So, David says, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. God can give it and take it. That's what he does in the Old Testament. And God, based on his spirit, can say, Hey, I'm going to take you and I will kind of not possess you, but I'm going to control you a little bit. You know, and you're going you're gonna to do what I tell you. He even refers to his servant Cyrus who was a Babylonian king. No way a godly man, not one of God's people, but here's my servant. God can totally do that. And the Holy Spirit absolutely works and burns in our hearts. That that passage in John 16, it says, when the, the advocate or the Holy Spirit comes, it says he will convict the world, which is cosmos, cosmos, the world, everybody with regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment. Not just God's people, but everyone. So the Holy Spirit totally works on your heart. And will even you, like, doesn't God's Spirit come upon a donkey in Numbers? Balaam's donkey, do you remember that? There's an example in, in Numbers. God's Spirit literally comes on a donkey and it talks to somebody. God can use donkeys. <laughs> so, all, all that stuff. Um, so there's that. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, cool. JC? Quick question. With, um, I remember somebody saying something about in certain situations, you're <coughs> just before the cross. Um, I, I can't remember, but like, when do you make that decision or how do you know? Yeah, so repentance before the cross, we talked about that in the problem study. So what happens is um, if you've studied out sin, somebody sinned with some, someone, and they, and they kind of come with this religious uh, response, and they're like, yeah, my sin's bad. Whew, thank God for Jesus and the cross. Then you go to repentance and show like, hey, you're using the cross as a license for sin. In Jude, uh, I think it's Jude 4, it says they pervert the grace of God and turn it into a license for immorality. And so instead of using the cross to catapult you to greater righteousness, you've actually used it to as an excuse, as in Romans 6, to let grace increase and keep on sinning. So if somebody's response is, yeah, Jesus really helped me, you know, praise God because I'm really, really sinful, but, you know, I'm not not lost, but I'm living in sin. Well, then you show them, here's what it says, repent or perish. And so it becomes kind of a judgment thing upon them. Like, hey, if you 
if you're living in sin right now and you're saying the cross has got me and you're with a high hand intentionally sinning, there's no grace. There's Hebrews 10. There's no sin. No, there's no uh, there's no sacrifice left on the altar. But the odds are they probably didn't understand the altar and the sacrifice in the first place. So that's where you do. Yeah. Other questions? What are some other things you guys... Ooh, it's late. All right, cool. We're going to be done. I thought it was going to do much of this stuff. Uh, the next time we're going to do is we're going to talk about false doctrines um, and dealing with a lot of that kind of stuff. And we'll also talk a little bit about bump busting. When you, somebody hits that bump... Um, and it's difficult to kind of get them over the hump and to the point where they really, I'm going to go for this, uh, and I'm going to become a disciple. We'll talk a little bit about that, too. And there will be a quiz next time, and that will be our last, it'll be our last CPR.